the world's favorite tax collector who became a follower of Jesus. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through 28 days of Matthew. We are going to start into Matthew 12. Uh, We have, uh, so kind of the journey that we've been through so far, Jesus is called into public ministry. He does the Sermon on the Mount. He shows his incredible power, uh, healing the sick. Uh, He sends out his disciples. Um, And then he talks a little bit, uh, um, well, we're we're in Matthew 12 now. So we're now in Matthew 12. And uh, I guess I wanted to just pause a little bit. Because I need to make you understand that this Gospel of Matthew is written by a disciple of Jesus. And he is uh, trying to show throughout this whole Gospel that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And as the promised Messiah, Jesus is fulfillment of a love story between God and man. And the love story between God and man is that God created man. Uh, They were in a great relationship. a very loving, wonderful relationship. Man rebelled, uh, and so he goes off in his own way. He's kicked out of the Garden of Eden, um, and God still tries to tell man, I still love you, I still care for you, but there's this conflict between God and man that exists until God finally says, okay, I'm going to go rescue man, and so he becomes flesh, dwells among us, and rescues man, and now we're restored back to this loving relationship between God and man. Uh, we are now in that kingdom. Uh, we now know that God loves us. And um, it's, it's a love story. It's a love story that has, uh, you know, all the elements of a great love story, right? You know, first love, we're together, and then one party kind of does something stupid, uh, and it breaks the relationship, and the other part of the relationship is, you know, uh, you know in a classical love story, right, the relationship is broken, but one side of the love story is... Um, Uh, is very angry at the other side, but there's a misunderstanding. And finally, they come back together. They understand it was a misunderstanding and they they join together uh, and they live happily ever after. I mean, that is the classic love. You go to Hallmark Channel and watch any Hallmark story. That is the Hallmark story, right? And and there are people, I I think it was uh, J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote Lord of the Rings, who first noticed that these hallmark stories uh, resonate so deeply with us because they are a reflection or a mirror or a type of the perfect love story, which is the love story between God and man. I mean, that is basically why these stories so resonate with us. And, you know, you watch a hallmark story and, and you get tears and then you get tears of joy and all that sort of thing. And it resonates uh, I mean, it's crazy, like, you know, my daughters, they love these Hallmark stories. And so every once in a while, I'm forced to watch these things. But they're, they're uh, I mean, and they all follow the same pattern for crying out loud. You know from the first five minutes of how this thing's going to end up. But it's fun because it's a love story, right? And love stories resonate deeply with us um, for that reason. So anyway, that's this whole story with Matthew. So... Um, it, in Matthew, he's trying to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah from long ago. And we'll see that today in Matthew 12. Um, but, but you would think that Jesus, uh, you know, healing these people would be, um, uh, would, would, would absolutely love to, um, 
you know, that the people would enjoy what Jesus uh, is doing. The people would be very happy with Je what Jesus is doing. I mean, he's healing people. He's going through Galilee. But you're starting to see now some conflict between the leaders, the Pharisees, and Jesus' disciples. Uh, and so the, the love story is kind of getting into the, into the that conflict portion right now, I guess you could say, the conflict uh, between Jesus coming in and the creation that he's coming into. So... That's just, a, that's just a kind of background information because now we're going to see the conflict start to ratchet up a little bit. So we're going to read uh, chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Oh, and I do have my, before I do that, I do have my uh, email open, I believe. Is my email open? Yeah, I have my email open. And if you want to send me an email, uh, Any time during this, if it stops working or whatever, you want to ask a question, david at hookcentral.com will get to me. I don't watch the, the YouTube or the, the Facebook live feed because it's, it's 20 seconds delay and it causes me all sorts of problems. So I don't do that. All right. So chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take a hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So now we start to see this conflict between the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees against Jesus. They don't like what Jesus is doing. He's starting to get a large crowd. Uh, people are going to him. He's healing these people and they don't understand what's going on and they're fearful. And why are they fearful? Because anything to do with that society, right, always goes to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And especially something like a healing would go to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It wouldn't go to some backwater hick preacher out in the middle of nowhere healing people. I mean, they are the ones who control the power. They're the ones who control everything. And anything outside of their power or their control is very scary for them and say so they don't like it. So Jesus is hungry and uh, he starts to glean in the field. Now, uh, this is a very common practice. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus, it was uh, said that uh, if you had a field you had to leave some portion at the end of the field ungleaned, which means that you didn't harvest the wheat from that area. 
uh, you left it as as raw, natural, harvestable area because if you had poor in your community, if you had people that didn't have food, that they were allowed to come into your field after the you know after the harvest is done, you left some of this food available, and they were able to come into your field and they were able to glean some of this food and they were able to feed themselves. And so this was a way in Leviticus to allow for the very, very poor in your community that they wouldn't completely starve, that there would be some food available to them to eat. And so it was perfectly legal for them to go into these fields and get this food. It was available to them and it was a great system in that society set up. And I would imagine that the gleaning probably would also happen on a Sabbath. Because if these people were sick on a Sabbath, they're not going into the temple. They're, they don't, these are kind of the, maybe the outcast of society, the very poor of society. They, they might not even necessarily go into the temple. Uh, but, and, and so they would go into these fields, they would glean whenever they're hungry. It might even be on a Sunday that they would glean these fields. But Jesus is different because the Pharisees are angry at Jesus. They don't like Jesus, they wanna get rid of Jesus, they wanna destroy Jesus, and so they're looking at anything they can find to kind of use against Jesus to say, look, this man is not a holy man. I um, remember, I mean, this happens all the time. People use the law, use the letter of the law of somebody to get them, right? Um, This happens all the time. My perfect example of this was one time we had a youth retreat. And if you have a youth retreat, you have to set up boundaries and guidelines. One of the boundaries and guidelines that we always set up at a youth retreat at the beginning is no purpling, right? Um, Women are pink, men are blue, right? And uh, when you combine pink and blue together, it turns turns into the color purple. So we always have this guideline that you can't, I mean, relationships go on all the time in these youth group functions, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, they might have an attraction there or whatever, but we don't want that attraction to be anything more than an attraction, right? So we say no purpling. You can't hold on to each other. You can't hug each other. You can't be all over each other. There has to be separation. Um, now I'm going to call it COVID-19 separation, right? You're, you have to be six feet of distance. No, no closer ever, ever again between, you know, boys and girls and these youth group functions. We call it no purpling. It's a, it's a, kind of a clever, clever thing. Um, but uh, I remember one time we had this, uh, this girl who really, really liked this young boy. And, um, uh, and, and a lot of actually girls liked the young boys, uh, you know, this young boy also. And so we had this one young girl who was kind of hanging on to this young boy. And by the letter of the law, you know, you sh- they, they shouldn't even be touching each other, but they weren't doing anything inappropriate by any means, but they were getting close enough that made the other girl very, very angry. So this other girl came up to me and she said, hey, I thought we had this policy of no purpling. Those two are holding hands. Isn't that purpling? And I looked and sure by the letter of the law, it was purpling and I probably should stop it. So I went over and I stopped it and, um, what I didn't know, and I found out later because uh, I just found out later, was that this, this, this whole incident was brought to my attention because the girl who brought it to my attention didn't want this boy giving the attention to this girl, right? She, she wanted all the attention to herself. And so she used the letter of the law. She used my ignorance as a youth leader um, to get involved in really what was probably just a dispute and a spat. And, 
And some of these uh, high school people can get really, really nasty and angry at each other. I mean, and they'll use anything that they can possibly use to get angry. It's worse than, than politics in Washington, right? I mean, they can just be very, very angry and bitter. And that's what, that's what was happening here in this, in this verse, right? In this part, the, the Pharisees want to get back at Jesus, right? And so to get back at Jesus, I mean, if Jesus had been a nobody, they would have never raised this issue. But because they're angry with Jesus, they raise the issue with Jesus. You know, what are you doing glean in fields? You're going against God's law. You shouldn't be doing this on the Sabbath. And so they want to test Jesus. And they say, would you, would you heal on the Sabbath? I mean, this is, this is perfect fodder to get back at Jesus. Oh, certainly he's not going to heal on a Sabbath. And so they bring a man, you know, that's, that, that should be healed. And they said, yeah, try healing this on the Sabbath. You know, your choice is continue with your ministry, continue loving people, continue healing, or follow the letter of the law with God. And so they, uh, they put Jesus to the test. And Jesus says, listen, if you had an animal that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you? you know, there are times when it's okay to violate God's law because life and death is at stake. And I am bringing life. And so Jesus heals the guy. You know, he says, I don't care. I'm going to heal the guy. And he does. And boy, this makes, boy, this makes the Pharisees very, very upset. And you can see, right? What do they say here? Uh, verse uh, 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted at how they might kill Jesus for doing a simple thing that, uh, of, of healing on the Sabbath. I mean, it's a minor violation of God's law, first of all. But secondly, it's, it's something that should have been done because, like Jesus says, this guy was there, he needed to be healed, and so Jesus heals him. But the, the Pharisees aren't having it at all. Um, and, and we can see in this love story now between, between God and man that Jesus now is trying to rescue man. Uh, we have a little love story within a love story. Jesus is trying to rescue man. And now we're going to see if the Pharisees and Sadducees let Jesus do that or if they're going to destroy him. And of course, we find out that they do destroy Jesus. Only temporarily, though. All right. So now we're going to go to verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him because now he knows that they're after him. So he's like, I'm going to continue to heal for a little bit more, but just don't tell anybody. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations put their hope. So um, again, we get this theme from Matthew that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And Matthew has this theme throughout his whole entire gospel. He wants to show that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament Jewish people had long looked for, that was going to sit on David's throne, who's going to make everything right. Uh, and if these words sound familiar, it's because it's from Isaiah. Um, we, we at Lent, which we just went through Lent and then Easter, but during, during Lent, we look at the words of Isaiah. And particularly on Good Friday, we constantly go back to the book of Isaiah and we show how Jesus was the promised one that was, that was promised in the book of Isaiah. 
You'll remember in the, in the book of Isaiah, uh, written by the prophet Isaiah, towards the end of the book of Isaiah, uh, chapters 42 through 52, we have these songs. They're called the servant songs. And there's four of them. There's four servant songs in Isaiah. And they begin at chapter 42 and they go to chapter 52. And basically what these servant songs are is this, this look at what the promised Messiah is going to look like. And there's four songs that talk to how he's humble and he's suffering and he's wonderful and he leads his people and all these things. And there's four of these songs in Isaiah. And so Matthew is quoting from the first servant song in Isaiah. And what's interesting is that um, at the time of Jesus, uh, at the time of Matthew, actually for most of the time of the Jewish history for a long time, everybody looked at these servant songs in Isaiah and said, yeah, this is the Messiah. This is a reference to the promised Messiah that's going to be coming. And so uh, Matthew goes back and says, well, the promised Messiah is Jesus. And the Jews, they kind of accepted that for a while, but somewhere around the Middle Ages, uh, the Jews started looking at these servant songs and saying, wait a minute, we can't let this point towards Jesus. Uh, that would be wrong because that would give validity to who Jesus is and what he's doing. And so somewhere around the Middle Ages, I'm not exactly sure when, but the Jews started writing that uh, these, this wasn't actually a reference to the promised Messiah. This was a reference to the restoration of Israel without the promised Messiah. But, but make no mistake, at the time of Jesus and at the time of writing these Gospels, these proclamations, these writings from Isaiah and from the whole Old Testament that, that looked forward to the Messiah were definitely looking towards the Messiah. And so we see that Jesus is the early Messiah, or Jesus is... Uh, looked at from these writings as the promised Messiah. There's absolutely no question. I mean, if you read this, he proclaims justice to the nation. He doesn't cry out. Um, he, a bruised reed he will not break. I mean, if it's a perfect description of the promised Messiah, and Jesus is the promised Messiah. There's, um, there's no denying it. I mean, if you really want to look at it just as as unbiased as you can, it's hard for unbiased people to look at this because you're either biased for Jesus or biased against Jesus. But it is really, really, really good prophecy and it, and it is not hard to imagine that Jesus is the promised Messiah from Isaiah. It's just not hard to imagine. And you go through the whole entire Lent and you read all these prophecies from Isaiah and you say, man, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. Well, of course it's Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the promised Messiah and Matthew says so. And we believe so. And there's a clear cut that it is Jesus. Um, so if you hear someone say, yeah, it wasn't. All these things in the Old Testament, they were only point, pointing towards Jesus. No, they were definitely pointing towards Jesus. All right. Still on? All right. Verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Is this the promised Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. You've heard that, right? A house divided will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? 
And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions, possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So it's a long portion here, but basically what Jesus is saying. So the Pharisees are now accusing Jesus. Why are they accusing Jesus? Because it is incontrovertible that Jesus is going through all the region, through Galilee, through everywhere, and he's healing people. He's healing from sickness and disease and demons, and he's doing all these things, and it is now absolutely apparent that he is doing them. The crowds say that he's doing them. The people say he's doing them. So the Pharisees have no choice. They have to deal with Jesus. They can't just let him continue doing these things. Uh, they see what's going on that's incontrovertible that Jesus is doing all these healings, so they have to deal with it. And they have to deal with it internally too. They have to look to themselves and say, why are all these healings happening? I mean, is this Jesus truly from God? Is he a good guy or is he from the devil? Is he a bad guy? And that is basically what it comes down to. The Pharisees have to make a decision. Is Jesus fundamentally good? Or is Jesus fundamentally bad? And we have to make that decision ourselves. Is Jesus, based upon who he is and the words that he taught and the life that he lived, uh, is he a fundamentally good person or is he a fundamentally bad person? Because I tell you that I look at Jesus, I look at his humility, I looked at the way he lived his life, I looked at the words, love your neighbor as, as yourself, love God, and I look at all of that and I have to come to the incontrovertible truth that Jesus is fundamentally good. And there can be no other way to look at the life of Jesus. You can look at all other uh, prophets that lead religions, uh, and I, you know, I don't want to necessarily pick on any one of them, um, but if you look at their life and you say, are they fundamentally good? Are they fundamentally flawed? And I look at all of these guys and I see that fundamentally, um, while they have some good things that they say, but fundamentally they are not, uh, I will put up Jesus, let me put it this way. I'd put up Jesus against any other leader of any other religion and Jesus will far outshine them because Jesus is fundamentally, you just cannot look at Jesus and say, he's bad because all the words that he speak about that, that, that move us at deep ways, that 
And, and the way that he lived and the way that he taught, it moves us, uh, moves us in a very, very fundamental way. And he cannot be anything other than good. And so then you have to ask your question, if Jesus is good, then can he possibly be driving out demons? And the answer is no, he can't be, because a house divided against itself is divided. Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees, look at what I'm doing, looking at living on life, look at how I'm living my life, look at the, the words that I'm preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and tell me that I am not uh, a good. Tell me that I am not uh, from God. And, and they can't do it, because Jesus is from God. Uh, by the tree, by the, if the tree is good, the, the fruit of the tree is good. And look at the fruit of the tree that Jesus has. And he is fundamentally good. And he can be nothing. And they, they have no response to this. Um, you know, they're, they're picking at gleaning, you know, the field on a Sabbath. And they're picking on healing on the Sabbath. And they're, they're picking at the edges to try to get people... To, to see Jesus, you know, as fundamentally bad, but he's not. He's fundamentally good, and the people see it, and I see it, and I know if you read the stories of Jesus, you see it too. Jesus is fundamentally good, and because of that, then, they have no choice in their mind but to realize that, um, that they've been serving a God as a Pharisee and as a Sadducee, they've been doing what they think is right. And if Jesus is good, that means that they need to reevaluate everything that they've done in their life. They need to make, uh, they need in their conscience, in their life, deep down fundamentally, they have to do an evaluation of who they are and what God's called them to do. Because if Jesus is fundamentally good, they have to do that. And you will see that the Pharisees are not willing to do that. Some of them are. Uh, like Nicodemus comes and sees Jesus at night and gets more clarification on this. Other religious leaders come to Jesus and they start to question him because they're starting to question their own goodness within them. But the religious leaders, ruling elite in Jerusalem, they cannot let it happen. They cannot let it stand. And they refuse to do the deep introspection that is necessary to understand their relationship with God when Jesus comes onto the scene. They have no other choice. And so they do. They kill Jesus. But we haven't gotten there yet. All right. So here's some of the introspection. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, we want to see a sign. Right? They're starting to do this introspection now. Well, if you, if you are who you are, we, we want to see a sign. Show us something. You know, we want to see it for ourselves. We hear all these things about what you're doing. Show us a sign. We want incontrovertible proof that you are who you say you are. We got to have it. So Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. <laughs> what sign could I give you? We just saw that, right, before. What sign is going to show you that Jesus truly is who he is? But none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So he's even giving two, two areas where repentance happened, right? 
When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through said places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And that is how it will be with this wicked generation. They want a sign. They want incontrovertible proof. And Jesus says, okay, here's my incontrovertible proof. It's the same as Jonah. In three days, something's going to happen. You're going to get spit out of the belly of the whale. You were dead in the whale, but now you're alive, right? And I tell you that the Son of Man is going to go into the belly of the earth, and in three days, something's going to happen there. And that's your sign. That's the sign. That's the incontrovertible proof that I am who I say I am, is that when I am spit out of the earth, you will know once and for all that I truly am who I say I am. Of course, we will see that that incontrovertible proof happened, right? But they don't see it. They don't see it as Jesus is doing. They still see Jesus as evil. And what does Jesus say? You wicked generation. You know, we clean out the house and I give you an opportunity, but when you come back in, you make it worse than ever. Uh, and so Jesus does not have a lot of love towards the Pharisees because they had the truth from God. They had what the heart of God was. God's heart is love. God's heart is compassion. And yet they don't see it. They're the religious leaders of the day and they don't see it. Why don't they see it? Because they're so comfortable living their religious, perfect life in there. You know, they, they live as the 1%. They live as the ruling class. You know, let them eat cake. Um, and uh, they don't even see the sin that they have and the darkness in their heart. They think they're the religious leaders and they're not. They don't even deserve to be the religious leaders. All they do is study. They study God's law and they put God's law on people. And they never put God's grace on people at all. They use, they use God's law to further their own uh, living and their standard of living and life. They, they use God's law to crush people. But God's law was never meant to be that way. God's law was put into place as a handbook for how man should live the life that God has us to live. It was never meant to be used as a club, and yet they do. Um, God loves humankind. God, every time man falls into temptation or falls into sin and his life is destroyed, um, it, God's not happy about it. God wants so much for man to live the life that he created him to live. He wants him to go out into creation and see the beauty of creation and just thank God for the life that he has every day. You know, at the end of life, at the end of your day, Lord, thank you for all the good things that happened in my life because there are so many good things. And sometimes we just focus on the negative, right? And we, we focus on the law. We focus on the bad things. Even this coronavirus, right? You could, at the end of the day today, you could, you could thank God for the wonderful things happen in your day, or you could just get upset and angry at all the bad things that happen in your day. Which day do you want to live? He asks for a sign. Jesus gives them a sign. Then they really have to think, <laughs> was Jesus a good man or a bad man? Oh my goodness. Yep. But, but Jesus said, you know, I can give you all the signs in the world. If your heart's not in the right place, the signs won't do anything at all because your heart is hardened. And when your heart is hardened, I could come into you and 
and create some, you know, I could take that mountain and move it. I could do anything and you still won't believe because your heart's hardened, right? Once your heart's hardened, as he's saying, you know, you come in with seven demons. Once your heart is hardened, you cannot change to hardened heart. That is the sin. That is the sin against the Holy Spirit is that my heart's now been hardened. That will never, ever um, see the good that, that God has for mankind, which, and there's so much good. You just, you just can't see it because your heart's hardened. All right, one last part. Verse 46, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother, uh, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus is preaching. Someone comes in, hey, your mother's outside and your brothers are outside. Now, these could be actual brothers of Jesus um, or they could be cousins of Jesus because the, in that culture, uh, you, you definitely have brothers and sisters. But if you had really, you know, in these clans, if you had cousins that, were, that you grew up with, right, that were in the same, you know, next door or whatever, they, they were considered to be your brothers too. And the reason why I bring this up is because um, there's a big Greek debate uh, about whether Jesus had brothers and sisters or not. Like, was, is he the, there's a Greek word that's monogeneus, and there's prototecticus. And monogeneus means the one and only, right? Uh, but prototecticus means that Jesus was the prototype, and then he had brothers and sisters after him, right? So a prototectic, prototecticon means that Jesus is the prototype. He's the firstborn, but then he had brothers and sisters after him. Or monogeneus means he's the one and only one. And, um, and there are places in scripture where Jesus says that he's the prototecticus, right? That he is the, that he, he had brothers and sisters. And um, there's not a problem with Jesus having brothers and sisters. I mean, certainly there's no theological issue with that uh, because they would have been the, the children of, of Joseph, not necessarily Jesus. Jesus, right, you know, is the, the only one from Mary um, without a father, uh, Certainly in that culture, they would have had more than one child. Um, so it's, there's no theological. But somewhere along the line, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, that Jesus, uh, because of the purity of Mary, that Jesus had to be the one and only son to protect the purity of Mary. And so there's a big theological debate about all of that, whether or not Jesus has brothers or sisters. Um, so when you have the book of James, uh, James calls himself the brother of Jesus in the book of James. Uh, and we believe that it is James, the brother of Jesus, that wrote, uh, I believe it's the brother of Jesus that wrote the book of James. Um, but, but if you believe that Jesus had to be the one and only son of Mary, uh, and he had no brothers and sisters, then James is a close cousin. Whether or not it means anything, I don't know. I mean, just a little historical tidbit on that. Uh, but the point of the text is that Jesus is now saying, I know I have a mother and I know I have brothers or cousins or whatever, but I'm all of you now because I am the, the prince of the kingdom. All of you now who are listening to my words are now welcome to be in the kingdom. He's not creating a dynasty, right? He's not like uh, Samuel, you know, the Adams, Quincy, John Quincy Adams, Samuel, you know, all these Adams, you know, he doesn't create, or King Elizabeth, right? He's not the house of Tudor that's creating a dynasty. 
Jesus is making it very clear. I am the king and it's a new kingdom, but I'm not creating a dynasty in my kingdom. Those people are not my brothers and sisters for purposes of the kingdom. You listening to my words are now part of the kingdom. And they were because they believed in Jesus, because they had faith that Jesus was their king and that he loved them and he would take care of them. They are now in the kingdom and they're followers of Jesus. And the thing about the kingdom is that it never ends. When you're in the kingdom today, you are in the kingdom for now and into eternity. It never goes away. You can start living as in the kingdom as if it will never end because it will never end. And you are the, you are the chosen child of God living in the kingdom. And that's a wonderful thing, totally wonderful thing. And it starts today. It starts today as you fight the coronavirus. It starts today with social distancing. You're a child of the king. What a wonderful thing. All right, so that's, that's enough for today. Um, that takes us all the way through Matthew chapter 12. We will do Matthew chapter 13 tomorrow. Um, thank you so much for joining me. Um, let us close in prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for your words. Um, we see by your words and your actions and who you are that you are the true personification of love. You're the true personification of grace, the true image of the one true God. Lord, um, there can be no other because you have claimed that you are and by your words and actions and resurrection, you prove that you are God. And uh, we worship and praise you and we thank you so much for calling us to be in your kingdom. Be with our world and our communities. We struggle with this virus at this time and keep us ever in your grace. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so that is uh, takes us to 12. We will see you tomorrow again at the same bat time, same bat channel, chapter 8. Have a blessed day.